listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The scripture reading is Genesis 9, verses 18 to 29, and if you'd like to follow along, it can be found on page 7 in the Pew Bibles. The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was peopled. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth and let him live in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Good morning again, everyone. So, full disclosure, the title for this week's sermon is a little silly. Maybe a little bit too silly. Um, But I know personally, I feel like I need some levity. I don't know about you. Um, The last few weeks here in church um, have been a bit heavy in terms of the teachings. Uh, We've been looking at some really tragic and dark stories from the book of Genesis. You had Adam and Eve falling from grace. Cain murdering his brother. uh, Noah's Ark and a flood wiping out practically all life on earth. Some dark stuff. So I just want to start out this morning with a word of affirmation. Things are going to be okay. In a couple weeks, we're going to get to Abraham, uh, which is really the spark of hope in the Genesis story. Abraham is like light breaking into this otherwise really dark series of stories. And then a couple weeks after that, we hit Advent, which means Christmas is coming. So we're talking Jesus and presents, and gingerbread lattes, things are going to be okay. But not this week. This week we've got another dark one, and it's a confusing story. It's a tragic story. It's a story that I've personally never heard a sermon on, and I've never even seen it discussed in like a Bible study setting. We all know the story of Noah's Ark, or at least most people do, But we never talk about what happened to Noah and his sons after the flood. That's because it's a pretty grim story. 
And I do want to warn you all up front that uh, this story is going to lead us into some really icky territory. And then just when it seems like things have gotten as dark as they can possibly get, they're going to get a bit darker. So put your helmets on, fasten your seatbelts, and let's dig in because things are about to get weird. (laughs) Now let me state the obvious right up front. Um, This story makes very little sense. Like just hearing it read just now, I get the feeling that something has to have been lost in translation. Noah and his family get off the boat, and then Noah proceeds to plant a vineyard and get drunk, which is sort of understandable. Like, I don't want to affirm drunkenness or anything like that, but this is a very human moment from the life of Noah. Think about what Noah has just been through. Everyone he knows except for his immediate family is dead. That's horrifying. That's traumatic. And so it makes sense that one of the first things on Noah's to-do list after the flood is to plant a vineyard, make some wine, and get as drunk as possible. Not saying I approve, but I understand. So Noah gets drunk and lies naked in his tent. So far, so good. I'm keeping up. But then things get weird when his son Ham sees his father's nakedness and runs out to tell his brothers. His brothers then walk backward into the tent and cover their father with, like, a sheet. And then when Noah wakes up and finds out what happened, he's furious. And he curses not Ham, which would actually make sense, but Canaan, Ham's son. Is everybody tracking with this story? I assume there's no questions. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. I have a few questions. Like, for one, what's going on here? What did I miss? Why curse Canaan if Ham's the one who did the thing? But the big question I want to zero in on first this morning is what did Ham do? The text is pretty vague on that point. We're told that Noah sees what his son did to him, but it doesn't tell us exactly what that is. What is it that Noah sees? Is Noah mad that Ham saw him naked? Seems like an overreaction. Is he mad that Ham told his brothers? Is this some kind of honor-shame thing? Or is there something else going on here? Is there more to the story? Now, the correct answer to that question is we don't know. We don't know what Ham did. People have been asking that question for centuries millennia even, but the bottom line is we don't know exactly what happened here. But there are some theories. And the general assumption since about the time of Jesus is that whatever Ham did, it was so bad, the authors of Genesis decided not to write it down. Like, if we were to go back in time to back when this story was an oral tradition, a lot of folks think that it was probably well known what Ham actually did. But by the time this story got written down, it was seen as so shameful, so bad, that the authors of Genesis left it out. Which is really alarming if you consider all the stuff they left in. So we don't know exactly what Ham did, but the book of Genesis, this story, does drop us a major clue, and it has to do with the idea of uncovering your father's nakedness. 
Believe it or not, that's a phrase that comes up at multiple points in Scripture. Specifically in the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, and you know we're going to go there, starting in verse 10. The words will be on the screen. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 20. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall be subject to punishment. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity, for he has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So in the biblical imagination, or at least in the Old Testament, uncovering the nakedness of a family member means that you had sex with one of their wives. And this is really troubling in the context of the Noah story. Because Noah only has one wife. Everyone else is dead at this point. And Noah's wife happens to be Ham's mother. I warned you that this was going to get icky. So the theory goes that the text might be implying through use of a euphemism that Ham seized his father's drunken state as an opportunity to take sexual advantage of his mother. And it's worth emphasizing again that we don't know for sure that's what happened, but that's the ballpark we're in with this story. Now this theory does help make sense of why Ham's son Canaan would have been the one to get cursed, especially if Canaan was the product of an incestuous relationship between Ham and his mother. That would have been very shameful and disgraceful for Noah and his family. So that's the first level of darkness in this story. (laughs) Things get a bit darker if we ask the question, why did the Israelites preserve this story? It's common for the book of Genesis to skip ahead several generations, sometimes several centuries. So why did this story make the cut? Whatever happened here, out of all the stories they could have told, of all the stories they could have put in, why this one? Why not just end Noah's ark on a happy note? God remembers Noah, the flood subsides, there's a new covenant between God and creation, and Noah lives happily ever after. Why can't the authors of Genesis give us that? Well, we actually know the answer to that one. And it lies in the identity of Ham's son, Canaan. At multiple points in this story, when Ham is mentioned, Ham is called the father of Canaan. It kind of reminds us that Ham is Canaan's father. It doesn't do that for Noah's other sons. We just get their names. But every time the text mentions Ham, it's like, Ham, who was the father of Canaan. Ham, you know Canaan's dad. Ham, whose son was Canaan. And when something gets repeated like that in Scripture, that means it's important. If we continue reading in the Genesis story, we hit chapter 10, which lists out the descendants of Noah's sons and all the people groups that descended from them. And in Genesis 10, verse 15, we find Canaan's lineage. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, 
the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites spread abroad, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. Now, none of that means anything to us today, right? Those are all places we've never heard of, except for a few uh, exceptions. But the authors of Genesis are doing something very deliberate here, enlisting out all these people groups and giving us such a detailed description of their territory. Canaan was the father of the Canaanites, who settled in the land of Canaan, which was the land promised to, Israelite, to the Israelites, who descended from Shem. So all these people groups we find listed in this passage are the ones that Israel drove out of the land. These are the native inhabitants of the land of Canaan who were wiped out by Israel. So this story about Noah and his sons essentially works as propaganda. The curse of Canaan was used to justify the extermination of the Canaanites. Now, this lends some credibility to that theory that Canaan might have been the product of an incestuous relationship because the Israelites had this really nasty tendency to paint their enemies as the products of incest. You probably didn't know that, but you're going to learn something today. Um, later on in the book of Genesis, we get the story of Lot and his daughters. And at this point in the service, you can spot people who've read the Bible because they let out a collective groan at the sound of Lot and his daughters. That's another really icky story. Lot and his daughters survived a flood-like event with the destruction of Sodom in Genesis 19. Then later that night, Lot's daughters get him drunk on wine, like really drunk, Noah-level drunk. And then they sleep with him. And Lot's daughters become pregnant by their father, and they give birth to two sons, Moab, who's the father of the Moabites, and Ammon, who's the father of the Ammonites. And guess what? The Moabites and the Ammonites are two of the sworn enemies of Israel. That's the function of a story like this. That's why such a dark story about Noah and his sons gets preserved. It helped to enforce Israel's claim to the land of Canaan, and it painted the Canaanites as subhuman. But before we turn down our noses at the Israelites or scold them for putting a story like this in our Bibles, we need to have a little talk about how this story was read for centuries by white Christians in Europe and America, particularly during the slave trade. Ham had three other sons, Cush, Egypt, and Put, all of whom settled in Africa. You can probably see where this is going. Now, what was the curse of Canaan again? Slavery, yeah. The lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. This story was used for centuries by white Christians to justify the enslavement of Africans. I want to share a quote with you from Thornton Stringfellow. You've probably never heard of him. Uh, he was the pastor of Stevensburg Baptist Church in Virginia. And Baptists, by the way, that's our people. 
And this is from a book he wrote in 1861 called Slavery, Its Origin, Nature, and History Considered in Light of Biblical Teaching. This one might turn your stomach a little bit. Reading from Pastor Stringfellow, the words will be up there. Quote, Ham was born black. Hence his descendants are the black race. A curse was placed upon Ham because of his wickedness. The curse involved the servitude of Ham's son Canaan to the descendants of Shem and Jepheth. Thus all blacks are to be understood as under the curse of God. And slavery is justified because God intended it. End quote. We have much to repent for. It was overwhelmingly white Christian Europeans who colonized the continent of Africa and enslaved its people. It was mostly white Christians who worked and profited from the slave trade. And it was white Christian Americans who bought and sold Africans, using stories like this to justify their actions. So what should we do with stories like these? That's a really important question. What should we do with stories that come with this much baggage? Stories that have been used in such destructive ways. There are people who recommend that we just ignore stories like these, that we forget about them, that we pretend they're not in the Bible, that we certainly never preach on them. There are other Christians who would defend a story like this would say it doesn't matter how this story was used by Israel or by Christians in the past. What matters is that this is part of God's word. So it's part of our heritage and we need to defend it. This is really the debate at the center of the Confederate monument controversies. Uh, All those arguments around those statues of Confederate generals in the South. Some people want to just tear them down and dispose of them. Other people defend them as part of their history and heritage, but there's a third group that I think we can learn a lot from. I'm thinking of people who argue that those statues belong in a museum. Let's not defend them, but let's not forget about them either. Let's give them some context. Let's put them in a civil rights museum and talk about how statues like these were used through history. And let's use them as an example so that we never do that again. We can't forget the story of Noah and his sons, but we don't have to defend it. In fact, knowing a story like this and remembering its history should alert us to the ways that we still use the Bible to marginalize people in our society today. There are still people today using the Bible to marginalize women to marginalize gays and lesbians, to marginalize the poor. We still use the Bible to prop up our national identity and paint our enemies as godless or subhuman. And if we don't remember the ways we've used Scripture to hurt people in the past, we will continue to do so in the future. We're not all that different from the Bible. Our lives are not that different from the lives of Noah and his sons. We all have stories from our past that we would like to forget. People we've hurt. 
structures of power and oppression, racism, hate, marginalization that we willingly participated in. I know because I've had these conversations with many of you. I've heard your stories of what it was like to be white and in power during the civil rights era. I've heard your stories of shame. I have similar stories myself. And the big takeaway I want you to have from today is that we need stories like yours. We should mourn the mistakes of our past. We should repent from the hate and violence that we've benefited from. But we can't forget. There are young people who need to hear your stories to see how far we've come. There are people of color and other minorities facing marginalization today who need to hear your stories to see that people can change. And there are lost people, people who don't know Christ, people trapped in systems of hate and violence who need to hear your stories to see what repentance looks like. The only way to redeem these kind of stories the dark stories of our past, is to remember them in the right context. To remember them in the context of how much we've changed, how far we've come, and how God is still at work to bring about transformation in our lives. That's what I'm reminded of when I read this story. That's the hope that I've found even in dark stories like these. We can't forget, we shouldn't defend, but we must remember. Let's pray. God, we repent of the mistakes in our past. We ask that you would give us the strength to remember the stories we just as soon forget. The people we've hurt, the lies we've embraced, and the sins we've committed. Lord, we pray that you'd empower us to learn from those memories, to see the ways we still need to repent and move forward. Use these stories to sharpen us into grace-filled disciples of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.